For a fact, you can't he hear me clearly, and Rory has snapped off his headphones. Everything's going swimmingly. Rory, this will be absolutely no assistance to you whatsoever, but I've had the same thing with my iPad for about two and a half years since George, right. George did the same thing um, when he was quite a bit younger and had no... I mean, I'm 38, so... Well... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you maybe should have known better. I'm particularly um, excited um, about the uh, the internet situations that we currently have um, to to explore. Not only is Stephen flagrantly showing off by extending his internet to the outside, strong um, Chinch is for some reason permanently in some sort of pixelated state, and Rory's just moved into a new house where the BT have told him to wait another 10 days before he gets anything. The, so. There is no internet in my house. So this is, this is being brought to you by uh, the marvel of modern technology that is 4G. And also, I've just broken my laptop, so I'm doing it on my phone rather than on computer. Chinch, what's your excuse? I've absolutely no explanation <laughs> for what, because normally my Wi-Fi connection is both hard and solid and very very <laughs> consistent very very consistent so I, I have no explanation as to what is happening i have no ethernet cables i cannot make full hard contact with wires so we're in the lap of the gods but it's a, it's clearly a one-off clearly can't, can't wait to find out what it is that chinch is downloading that's uh, caused this whoa well, whoa, whoa, I... whoa 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 you know one thing won't be it will be a premier league football match because <laughs> they are all awful <laughs> Chinch is, Chinch is currently asking for a, yet another viewing of Iceland versus England to be sent his way. And it is slowly being downloaded from the UEFA servers. If it's like last week, then he'll basically just sit there in silence, won't he? So it's fine. <laughs> this is another way of expressing Chinch's fury with the world. He has decided instead, whilst in brighter spirits, to um, just turn his internet off. It always tends to be when I see your faces, though, I tend to go rapidly downhill. I'm very chipper. And then we start podcasting and I, I just seem to lose the will to live. But I'm going to be better. I'm going to be better this week. This is Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends talk football over food, or today it may well be three and a half. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth of BT Sport, BBC Match of the Day, and an Edwardian Terrace. Andy Hinchcliffe of Sky Sports, a more than trifling football career, and an extended semi in Cheshire with terrible Wi-Fi. And Rory Smith of the New York Times, and as of a few days ago, Rory, a period townhouse. That's a nice way of putting it, yeah. It's a tall, thin house. We have a new house, but it's full of boxes. It's, um, we're, still, we're still very much mid-move, and it's bet to be in this state until mid-2023. <laughs> what, uh, what, bearing in mind, we're, look, we're searching for food on these episodes where people are strung out across no. all, all sorts of everywhere. Have you actually eaten in your new house yet? There's, there's no food in the house, Hugh. That is, that's very much a first quarter of 2022 kind of problem. <laughs> uh, the, no, we have, we, my mum and dad brought, um, brought a delicious, my mum's lasagna, is the greatest food in the world uh, because she she understands that crispy bits are a food group. So the, the it is it's more it's more crispy bits than lasagna. She basically burns her lasagna. And I really like it. <laughs> so um, she's all she's got like a special technique for burning a lasagna. She knows exactly at which point to remove to remove the foil from the top so that you burn the top of it. It's I mean it's magnificent. Uh, we had that here on Sunday as a sort of first meal, and I think. Ed is going to have his first lunch here uh, today when I bring him back from Playgroup and give him a ham sandwich. Oh, easy, Tiger. <laughs> I know. It's exciting. <laughs> but it's not just a normal ham sandwich, Steve. It's, a, it's, it's obviously Italian cured ham. It's, oh. not, it's not British ham. And it's in a cheese roll from Morrison's, which is the, the finest um, form of bread. So lots to look forward to for the entire Smith household over the course of the next, well four years by the sounds of well, things well we should be in a position to actually you know kind of actually have a house that isn't just a lot of boxes full of stuff we don't want and had forgotten about uh, by the time the Qatar world cup is finished do you have, do you have a fridge uh, didn't hear that thought did, is chinch asking me whether i live on a ridge not really <laughs> I'm, I'm not, not entirely sure oh no this is terrible <laughs> not entirely sure of the geological formations beneath my feet um, but it's, it's quite near a mall. No, we've got a fridge. We've got a fridge, Chinch, yeah. I want to know what the longest running reason that we won't be able to go to Rory's house to record the podcast will be, whether it will be the ongoing coronavirus pandemic or the fact that he still hasn't unpacked enough boxes in order to be able to facilitate all of us. 
Uh, both are linked, Stephen. My inability to, to unpack boxes is directly related to the coronavirus crisis. Uh, we, you'll be invited round for my 45th. It's <laughs> <laughs> not had his 40th yet. <laughs> uh, so that's the food, um, whether it's burnt lasagna or what sounds to be some sort of hipster ham sandwich to come. Um, the football is chinch. Do you know what you're talking about today? Uh, 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 no. <laughs> That was affected, you'll be pleased to know, and not an internet-related stuttering. Thank God for that. Uh, Well, given that some stores and online outlets have already started selling Christmas paraphernalia, I'm going to invoke the phrase, tis the season. But on set piece menu, it is not, you'll be pleased to know, the season to be jolly. No, tis the season for knee-jerk reactions. Why is it time after time that we draw sweeping conclusions after the first weekend of a new season? And pretty much every time those assertions are completely confounded come the end of the campaign. We've all done it again this year, so over the course of the next couple of shows, we're going to talk about it in the context, firstly, of fans and journalists, that's this week, and then on next week's show, consider how far that infects the world of the players. So that is all to come. You can get in touch with the podcast, that's setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook, and please do subscribe to our new YouTube channel as well. Uh, This is from somebody who has asked to remain anonymous the reasons for which will become immediately clear. Gentlemen, as an avid listener, today I perform my weekly routine of saving your podcast for my long weekend run. Imagine my dismay when not long into SPM 195, The Football Pyramid, I heard something that sent me reeling off my treadmill. I may have missed some of the context over the hum of my treadmill motor, but I distinctly heard Fantasy Premier League and Role Play as Sean Dyche in close proximity. I'm not sure how you and or your contributor managed to peek into my boudoir, but I must ask you to cease and desist immediately. What goes on between consenting adults who choose to dress and sound like defensive-minded football managers while recruiting their consenting partner, usually dressed in full US Women's International Alex Morgan kit, is between them and them only. Thank you for your attention and good day. He says, name redacted, founder, president and cosplay enthusiast, fantasy Premier League after dark, 18 and over, play responsibly and when the fun stops, stops, safe word, Hinchcliffe. Uh, P.S. Thank you for not including my real name or email address. I am in this tragic historical moment an American and we all know that there's nothing puritanical America disdains more than the frank, open and healthy discussion of soccer, uh, football and indeed sex. Please let me know if this sets me on the course for Buffalo status, which when I type it out sounds like an entirely different type of fetish. I thought you'd end that with the, um, with, and that's Domingo in Thresher St. Martin. <laughs> I do have his name. I'm not going to say it because as much as I think that he might be joking, I'm not going to risk it. We did actually oh, that, mention. That is, that is clearly a joke. Well, that in that case. Joke. Although, do we think it is possible that Sean Dyche features in anyone's... I mean, we're not... This is not a kink-shaming podcast. We don't go into that sort of business. Do we think it's possible that Sean Dyche fe- features in anyone's sort of nocturnal fantasies? I think it probably is possible. Not even Mrs. Sean Dyche, I would suggest. <laughs> that, that feels like a sensible con- conclusion to that whole thing. Uh, we did, as um, the person whose name has been redacted, uh, indeed mentioned both Fantasy Premier League and Sean Dyche last week. If you weren't distracted by the possible privacy incursions, you may well have joined the SPM League on Fantasy Premier League. Meanwhile, here is a useful opportunity to remind you that you can also enter the SPM PLPL, the Set Piece Menu Premier League Predictions League. We'd like you to put the Premier League teams in the order you think they'll end the season. You'll receive points for the accuracy of that prediction and the winner will be the receiver of bountiful gifts of little to no cash value. Head to tinyurl.com forward slash setpiecemenu to register your team and your selection. You have until the end of the 5th of October to do so. You can change your submission as many times as you like between now and then. So back to your correspondence then. And Richard Parfit, whose last email contained a very hefty spreadsheet. So my brain is grateful for the brevity of the one that he has sent this time. He is responding to last week's pod. Hi, folks. Firstly, cheer up, chunch. Poor Chunch. England looks short of a left back at the moment, so there could be a call up around the corner. Although, given the nature of the football that you've been watching, Chinch, perhaps that's not a good idea. Secondly, when the Premier League asks itself whether it needs the football league clubs within the football pyramid, do clubs outside the top six not think differently? Isn't it in their own interest to make sure there's a good support system in place for the lower leagues, given that they're only two bad seasons away from League One? Bolton and Wigan were both Premier League clubs not so long ago. There are eight or nine teams in League One, depending on whether you count Wimbledon and MK Dons as one club or two, who have played previously in the Premier League. And you'd think that relegation-threatened clubs would want some sort of guarantee that relegation doesn't end up meaning bankruptcy. Or do they get promoted and immediately start lobbying for relegation to be abolished after they have been promoted? Yours from the exotic land of Oxfordshire, Richard Parfitt. 
There's an element, there's definitely an element of that, you know, that, that as soon as teams come up, it's amazing how quickly they forget where they've come from. That's definitely true. And it doesn't, it's probably not the first season or even the first couple of seasons, but I reckon if you stay in the Premier League for three years, you're probably thinking, well, we do, you know, we'll, you know we've, we're an established team now, um, in the same way as Manchester City have kind of cast themselves as these insurgents against the European elite, despite being members of the European elite. Uh, but he's right that it does logically make sense that, 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 that teams who could get relegated, which is basically everyone apart from the top six, uh, should want there to be a support system in place. But my guess is that most of them would prefer it if the Premier League and Championship were sealed off. Uh, Richard's point has added merits because of this um, statistic, which is, should be quite troubling for, for the teams outside the top six, is that around about 50% of the teams that are relegated from the Premier League subsequently are relegated from the Championship in the, the not-too-distant future. So, yeah, that, that, it's a good point. You, you, you should be concerned that, that that ability to drop like a stone, there's plenty of evidence of it. Simon Way is next up. Dear Presenty, Talky, Righty and Eaty. We all know who the last one is. I enjoyed your debate in episode 193 on whether an end-of-season European tournament is a route to improving Europa and Champions Leagues. But, he says, just as Mark Hughes' Manchester City would string some lovely moves together with the ball flowing through Ilano, Rubinho and Stephen Ireland, only for Joe to banjo the ball into the National Cycling Centre next door to the Etihad, I'm afraid that all four of you missed the open goal when it was presented to you. You spoke a lot about how the end of the season tournament made for compelling TV, but any attempt to improve the current setup needs to take into account the in-stadium audience just as much as it does those watching at home. If you just uproot the final stages of any tournament to a random city, you take away the fans' chances of seeing their teams at home in what would definitely be the biggest matches of their season and could, if they're a small club making an unexpected run to the semi-final of the Champions League, think Atalanta or Manchester United, literally be a hmm. once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see such a game in the flesh. As most of you are intelligent men, I trust that you'll agree that fans who attend matches should be as important a consideration as TV viewers and any attempt to uproot games to neutral venues where only a fraction of teams fans can attend must be resisted. But... We all like the intensity at the end of the season mini tournaments have to offer. So how do we achieve that and keep the home and away formula? The answer, my friends, lies in America. I'm not suggesting that we put cheese on every food known to man, nor that we should rename rounders, pretend that we've invented a new sport and crown ourselves world champions. Neither am I suggesting that we start referring to tuna fish as if there's a form of tuna that is not indeed fishy, or that we should start to measure water as freezing at 32 degrees Fahrenheit when every damn idiot in the world knows that the freezing point of water is zero degrees Celsius. And I'm certainly not suggesting that we should elect a as our leader. Oh, apparently it's too late on that front for those of us in the UK. In sports, America has one thing very, very right. The end of season playoffs. This is because, like most good things that come out of America, they nick the idea from someone else. In 1900, the wise and wonderful nation of Canada, which is very much like America, but with less cheese and racism, introduced a three-game playoff series for ice hockey's Stanley Cup. Playoffs are perfect. You keep the home and away aspect of the game, but get the intensity of an end of season tournament. So my suggestion is this. Play group games to get both European tournaments down to the final eight and then take those eight teams into an end-of-season tournament. Quarter and semi-finals are then split into three-game playoffs with a home-slash-away-slash-home format. The games are not played on an aggregate score. There's no need for the away goals rule, which immediately get Mr. Eaty on my side in this debate. So if one team wins the first two games, there's no need for game three. Ties can be played on a Saturday-Wednesday-Saturday basis, which will see the intensity build nicely through the week. This approach has three key benefits. We keep games at home grounds rather than neutral venues. We also keep the interest of all games within the tournament context without other league and cup competitions getting in the way. And we create more games, which means more TV money and more viewers. I'd argue that any game three would draw significantly higher viewing figures than any two-legged semi-final. I realize that additional games create more pressure on players' bodies, but rather dismissively and conveniently for this argument from Simon, he says, but that's another conversation for another day. Love the pod as always. That's from Simon Way. I like that idea. That's good. Good work, Simon Way. I think getting rid of the aggregate scoring is something that I very much support. The only problem with playoffs in soccer is that it's completely out of context with the rest of the sport. And if you take away aggregate scores in, say, Champions League or Europa League, do you need to think about doing it in all other situations where there might be two-legged ties, whether it's the nonsensical two-legged semi-final of the EFL Cup or playoffs at the end of the season? It just feels as though the reason that soccer has such global popularity 
is its relatively simplistic nature. Most people, wherever you are watching in the world, understand what the what's at stake, what the what the basic rules are, and how contests are going to be decided. And if you suddenly, I would imagine UEFA would be against the idea of doing something that that takes that level of that stage of the competition out of sync with the way that football is played just about everywhere else. That's probably right. Although I suppose the thing is, things like aggregate straws and away goals are inherently confusing to people who don't have that kind of immediate, you know, we, we all have that immediate understanding of it because we're kind of, you're brought up with it and you, you just, it just becomes a thing that you understand. But it, that's not to say that it's, it's kind of in, like intuitive or particularly logical or better than something else. You know, you have to start these traditions somewhere, I guess, that if you changed it so that it was a playoff system, then within two or three years, everyone would be like, oh, well, this is a playoff system, so that's fine. You know, they're not, it's not, written, it's not like in the Bible that, you know, European football has to be on a home and away format. It's like the... <laughs> Right, it's something that King Solomon came up with. I don't, I, so long since I've read it, it might be in there. <laughs> I, I thought, no, it was delivered on Mount Sinai to Moses, wasn't it? <laughs> no, 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 that's the one about um, the transfer window running until the end of July and August. Um, no, the, um, the home and away format, I think, is, was one of Solomon's decisions when two, two teams came to him and asked for the fairest way to settle a, uh, a local tournament. He came up with, with home and away format and away goals. Well done, Solomon. I thought it was written somewhere on the Rosetta Stone, but we're obviously just getting our, uh, well, our, our ancient history mixed up. Uh, Chinch has returned. How are you feeling, Chinch? Can you hear everything? Uh, I can, but then I just um, knocked over a, a whole pint of water. <laughs> uh, so that's why I wasn't really listening. It all sat, it, it kind of sat, it was just a burble mainly, but it, it sounded intelligent, informative and correct, but I didn't really grasp a lot of it because I was trying to stop water cascading into my computer. So apologies there. I'm having a nightmare, a nightmare of a pod. We're all having a nightmare. Me and Chinch are going through it and Steve and Hugh have to, have to listen to it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's astonishing to me is that I'm sat outside with fully functioning technology and you two can't get up and running within the confines of your own homes. Well, no, look, listen, my, my, my internet-based problem is not my fault. You can blame BT for that. There's just no, I'm not, I'm not accepting responsibility for that in the slightest. It's BT's fault. The, Me, bit, I, jamming... the bit of BT I work for, Rory, has no control over internet. <laughs> they, I, I can't, they, they, my boss has not got any sway in that area. Do you think I should have called BT and said, look, actually, I have, you know, three times done BT Sports Scroll with Robbie Savage, sort this out. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> put, put it this way, Robbie Savage just need to say he's Robbie Savage and I'm sure he'd be able to get it sorted out. Uh, if fine... you tell them that, they're going to put you back at least a month. So do not mention <laughs> Savage. Please don't do that. <laughs> Finally, thank you to Anthony, who is at FBL Stag on Twitter, who forwarded somebody else's tweet, which seemed to him and to us indeed to chime perfectly with our manager most likely to series. I'll rephrase the original tweet from Anthony's colleague, Tom, who is at WGTA underscore FPL, uh, who got the assist at uh, FPL. Uh, manager most likely to have a carpeted bathroom by choice, David Moyes. Uh, so thank Tremendous. you, to, thank you to Tom and Anthony for that. Uh, Anthony's Twitter cover picture, by the way, is Shane Long, which uh, should please Rory. And oh, come great on. strain. Uh, correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Right, so here we are between weeks one and two of the new Premier League season. Despite the fact it's mid September and four teams haven't even started yet, some things are, as the great Lonnie Gordon said, happening all over again. Despite at least 37 games to play, it would appear that we have come to a great many conclusions already. Conclusions that we will probably spend the rest of the season bending all the subsequent evidence to match. West Brom and Fulham, definitely getting relegated. Leeds, best promoted team ever. Liverpool, suddenly frail at the back. And Arsenal, they're good now, aren't they? All these on the basis of one weekend. So why are we so prone to knee-jerk reactions? Why do we make snap verdicts and yet never learn from the fact that the conviction with which they are made is completely undermined by everything that happens afterwards? So the time of year may be displaced somewhat, but some things are excruciatingly familiar. Tis the season for knee-jerk reactions. Stephen suggested this one. So from his palatial back garden, he will take the floor. Well, that Liverpool 4 leads 3 game sort of started the thought process because... I'm fairly sure that other underdog teams have gone to big Premier League clubs, even the reigning champions, and occasionally thought, do you know what? We're going to fight fire with fire here. We're going to take the game to them because 
if we sit back and defend, the chances are we'll lose anyway and we'll lose in a sort of timid and weak manner and nobody wants that. So we're going to give it a damn good go. And the inevitable conclusion is that they either lose, as Leeds did in a high-scoring yet very, very entertaining game of football, or that they don't take the early opportunities that come their way and end up you know, getting drubbed 4 5 6 nil. These things do happen. Yeah, I was astonished to discover at the weekend when Leeds took that approach at Anfield that it seemed to be from an awful lot that was being written and said about the game that this was some kind of tactical masterstroke by Marcelo Bielsa and nobody had ever previously thought of taking this approach. And it just, and I suppose from a journalistic point of view, it was just something that fit into the narrative of how exciting it is to have Leeds back, which of course it is. There are a proud, they're a big, they're an historic club. So, and crucially, a, lo- a local club for one of us. That's very well, important. Well, exactly, and I'm sure you will you will leap to both Leeds and Bielsa's defence shortly, Rory. But that also because they have this idiosyncratic manager, of which there there remains sort of a, a a mystique around him as his influence on the game. That this this was just too much for some people to contain themselves with, and they just had to go with the. This is the first time this thing has ever happened, and is, aren't Leeds going to be brilliant for the Premier League? Whereas if it had happened to another club, I would imagine the narrative would have been, "Ah, oh, that's naivety for you, you silly, silly boys. You just, you just don't go to Anfield or Old Trafford or the Etihad and try and take on the big dogs at their own game because you'll end up losing one way or the other." It it, it, it struck me as odd. It's, I, I'm, I'm not going to leap to the defence of Leeds particularly. I thought, that, I thought they played very well in the first half, but I, I think basically Stephen's right that, I don't know if I just called you Stephen. Steve. No, Steve. Like, Steve's right. Look, it's, there, it's there on Zoom. Stephen. Maybe that's what it is, yeah. That's, it's confusing me. St- Stephen is, Stephen uh, Gordon Wyeth is right. <laughs> that, um, basically, if you look at it, like Leeds, Leeds did play well and they were very exciting and they did fight fire with fire and they did go toe-to-toe with Liverpool. Um, they, I, I suspect that it was quite a good time to play Liverpool, after, especially after the short pre-season, that Liverpool did look a bit rusty and a bit shaky, no question about that. Um, they didn't play particularly well. On the other hand, Leeds finished basically all of the chances they, they made, which is good in one sense, obviously, you want to finish your chances. Bad in another, they only made three. And in the second half, really, apart from the click goal, Liverpool shut them down fairly consistently you know that that I think the XG which is not always a perfect metric had Liverpool winning it fairly clearly although I don't think it was anywhere near four I know what he means about the naivety but I think in what what that game was testament to were were two it's not even knee-jerk reactions as as predetermined reactions Leeds we all we all know about Bielta's style we all know about the way that they came up so Leeds were always even if Leeds had gone to Anfield and and been beaten 6-0 there was always going to be an element of, well, this is Bielsa's way and he'll stick with it and it'll work. And that happens to be what I believe. So I'm not criticising it, but I think that that has been written in. And ultimately, unless Liverpool won 5 or 6 nil, there was going to be a reaction of, you know, they don't look quite as dominant as they were last year. They, they might be a little bit, that might be a little bit, you know, are they a bit sort of sated with success and they rediscover the, the, the dynamism they need. I think those storylines were set before that game happened. And actually, it's quite an interesting example of how a, a match almost doesn't need to happen now for the storylines to continue, that it, it feels ever more like wrestling, where traditionally that the culmination, but often the storyline continues regardless of what happens in the match, that the match is, is kind of a, almost a byproduct of this storyline is happening. So the storyline is that Liverpool are shaky and that, that Leeds are attacking and kind of you know what's the, not one-dimensional kind of positively one-dimensional you know they're, they're firm in their belief they've got this philo- philosophical style that they'll stick with regardless and it will work regardless of what happens in the game and I think that was what was really interesting about 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 that particular match I, I just want to clarify bearing in mind that I do have to drive over the M62 quite regularly so I don't want a lynch mob waiting for me and I even have a Leeds United supporting neighbour that it wasn't just that game that, that sort of started the thought process. But then there was this an, awful, an awful lot after West Brom's defeat at home to Leicester. There were people saying, well, West Brom are going to struggle. Where are the goals coming from? What, based on the fact they failed to score in one game against an established Premier League side? And likewise with Fulham, although there's probably a little bit more uh, concern in terms of you know, recruitment and, and whether they're, you know, how, how well prepared they are for the Premier League this time around. But they lost 3-0 at home to Arsenal. The FA Cup winners, 
the team that won the Community Shield just a couple of weeks ago, who had a brilliant sort of 2020 so far. So uh, uh, judging Fulham's chances of Premier League survival on the basis that they lost at home to an inform Arsenal side seems, seems just as sort of knee-jerky to me as sort of some of the narrative surrounding, surrounding Leeds. So I, I thought we, we saw it with all three promoted sides. I've always been asked, again, when I started working maybe 10, 12 years ago at Sky, the question always asked before a game is, who is going to win this game? What, what is the team going to be? You always ask for predictions. Even after one or two games, how's the season going to pan out for this team? Has it always been that way? Because I've always been used to being asked these questions and trying to make predictions when really you don't clearly have the information. You're just, in many ways, guessing. You're thinking, well, it could be this. And maybe I do want to actually, rather than sit on the fence, I want to say something definitive but it is that everything has to be definitive now it's the immediacy we need an answer today of how Liverpool and Leeds are going to do you know Fulham are going to go down West Ham are going to go down was that the same even last season when Norwich went to Liverpool and were beaten I think on the opening game were we saying oh Norwich are down were we doing it even last season but it seems to be we've moved into the world now where every question is all about predictions and you've got to tell us here and now how the rest of this game is going to go or this season is going to go. Has, has that always been the way? Or in the past, were people again saying, it's the first game of the season. This game's gone a certain way, but maybe that's not how the season's going to pan out. And have a bit of common sense, because that's how most people would look at a situation like this. But maybe football has changed. And do broadcasters want to be, well, we were the first to tell you that Leeds were going to maybe have a good season. We told you on day one this is going to happen. We told you Liverpool were going to have a bit of a, a ropey season. We told you on day one. Is this why... They ask the question and they want these answers. So when we get to the end of the season, they can go back and say, well, we were the first to say it. Is that why those questions are asked? And people, maybe pundits, feel obliged to say on day one how Liverpool and how Leeds, how Fulham, how West Brom are going to do. Because really, we simply don't know. That's the honest answer we don't. But we can't say, I need a bit more information before I make my decision. You've got to tell us, as a former player, here and now, how the season's going to go. And it's pretty much impossible. I think it's, it's like talking point culture, isn't it? It's this sense that you, you have, and we, we, we will all do it in, in, our, in our professional lives, that there's this sense that you, you can't, you have to draw a conclusion from everything. And there's this, you, you quite often it on Twitter, this isn't a, a complaint at all, but you quite often it on Twitter that you kind of, you say one thing in like October, and then by February, you say another, and you, someone will drag up the old tweet and say, well, I thought you said this. And you're a bit like, well, I had it with Neymar recently, actually, that I've, I've written quite critical stuff about Neymar in the past. And then because Neymar changed, I wrote something praising of Neymar, saying Neymar seems to have changed. And I had all these kind of gotcha tweets saying, ha ha, you hypocrite. And you'd be like, well, well, no, like I've changed my opinion based on the available information. That's, that's what you're meant to do. Like, that's how we should all live our lives is you accept that your, that your views can alter and sometimes become like diametrically opposed because the situation has changed. But I think there is, there's definitely a, a desire within both broadcast and print media to, to make conclusions and predictions almost every week. And I, I don't know, I, th I wonder whether do we need to, is this a, is this a media thing or is, it, is the media in that sense reflective of how fans talk about football? But just, is that not the way that fans operate? And I, I know what change means about seems to be getting quicker and we seem to be becoming more definitive in our conclusions every week. But I think it has always, it, certainly in my experience, the last, you know, the, my memory extends back three, maybe four months. And <laughs> the, the, it's, no, I mean, it's, as far back as I can remember, it's been a bit like this, that there's never been, certainly this, let's say this century, it's always been very kind of, they've lost, it's a crisis, they've won. It's going to be glory. Like there's never been, I, I don't think there's ever been a time that I can remember where people have been like, well, they've won, but let's see how that pans out. That doesn't seem to be the, the way in which we talk about football anymore. It may have been 20, 30, 40 years ago, but I don't think it has been for, for some time now. Because it really doesn't make sense to ask that question on day one, how any no. player, any, how any team is going to do. Is it, is it that they want to be, well, we'll say a load of things and one of them will probably come true. And at the end of the season, we can go back and say, we were the first to tell you. And they will make a big point of saying, we were the first to tell you that Liverpool were going to have a shaky season because we saw it on day one and we knew exactly what was going to happen over the next 30-odd games. There is no way anybody 
no matter how experienced you are in football or how you understand the game, can make that. So maybe that's what they want to do. Get a variety of opinions, maybe. Have really strong kind of um, convictions or conclusions to, to one game and say, well, right, we'll just keep that in mind because depending on what happens, we can go back. But is it about being first? So we can no, get I it see- wrong. We won't mention it if we get it wrong. But if we get it right, mm. we're going to go to town on it. Ne- that, I think- that whole sort of concept of never wrong for long, Chinch, that you see yeah. an awful lot on rolling or, or see and hear on, on rolling news an awful lot. I think it's that's a byproduct of it, though. I don't think that certainly the broadcasters are aren't in the business, particularly of saying saying going back and saying, look, here's what Martin Keown said in October. Wasn't he? You know, isn't he Nostradamus? I I don't think it's that. I think it's more the sense that the game happens, but a game is ninety minutes in a twenty four seven news culture. So what what the game is used for, it becomes like a pivot on which you you say a load of stuff building up to it about about what what will influence those 90 minutes then the 90 minutes happens and then you have to draw conclusions from those 90 minutes to fill to fill effectively the next 72 hours of that culture until the next game happens you have to they become kind of i find it increasingly that games are identified especially this time of year games are used as, as occasions to identify weakness and where you need to strengthen or where you know where things are going wrong there is this desire in the media i think to to draw conclusions basically to have something to talk about because if we if we all did what we probably should do if, if it functioned as it should function and there was a game and a team won and one team lost and basically it was all slightly chaotic and and, and there's a little bit of luck involved and it wasn't entirely clear whether that was deserved and we all looked at it watching the game and thought well that could have gone the other way and we all sat there and said in the studios and then in the newspapers and on, on the websites and on social media. And we all said, well, you know, that was, was a good game. It was a good game. Uh, both teams play quite well. Both teams have flaws. Let's see if they can rectify them. You can't really drag 72 hours worth of coverage out of that, can you? And that, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the problem. But again, I don't know whether that is, and there'll be a lot of people listening who I think who would, would naturally say that it's the, the media has created that culture and effectively conditioned fans to think like that. And that's probably right. But I, I do wonder whether fans have always been a little bit like that anyway. And because the media is basically populated with people who are fans, whether they're ex-players or not, or even maybe players think like that because that, that, that's, that's the culture they've been brought up in, that, that that maybe is what leads it, that there is a sense amongst fans that, that, you know, that those, things have gone wrong in those 90 minutes, so they need to do this, this and this, or that things have gone right, which means they've done a win in the title. Maybe that's just how we think about football. Whoever's, whoever's led that, that particular form of social conditioning. We'll come back to fans in just a moment because you're, you're right, there are, there are two very distinct elements to this. One, one is the, the, the media construct, if you like, of content generation and the desire to fill much more time, airtime, than has ever needed to be filled in, in decades past. Um, and, and the fans thing is, is a separate thing. So we'll come to fans in a second, but I want to finish off on the media element first. And I wonder what it's not just content generation. It's the it's the conviction with which that content generation mm. is now produced. So, for example, Chinch, and we'll come to Steve in a second, but Chinch, the fact that you are being asked to provide a sweeping statement about something after so little evidence upon which to make that decision, it is not only that they are asking you to do that, but they are asking you to do that with such conviction that it puts you on either side of a debate that then can take place over the course of the next 72 hours or indeed nine months, if that's, if that's the case. It, it, are we now focusing so much on the, the conviction with which that opinion is stated rather than whether that opinion is truthfully held or indeed is based on any of the evidence? Um, yeah, I think you're right. Just to give you an example of this, I did, um, it's not a rival podcast. It's a podcast for my employers, so I'm you know, financially obliged to do it. And we were talking about the opening weekend of the championship season. So I was talking about Sheffield Wednesday. They had a really good away win at Cardiff. They won 2-0, played really well. Now they've had this 12-point deduction. So they're kind of, they've eaten into that by three points. So they're nine points away now. And I was just talking generally about Sheffield Wednesday. You know, it's a great club. They've got a good squad. They've got a good experienced coach there. You just never know. It's a crazy league. Okay, they're, they're clearly behind everybody else. But in this league, you can get on a run. And over the course of 46 games, you just never know. Sheffield Wednesday might be able to challenge for the top six. But how that was taken, a couple of people sent me a couple of tweets from people saying, oh my God, Andy Hinchcliffe has said that Sheffield Wednesday will finish top six after one game and they're nine points adrift of everybody else. And I said, and I read back what I'd actually said. I hadn't said that. I'd basically said, this is what's happened now. Really impressed with that first game. There's every possibility, if things go well, and these top players do perform well, 
that the club have a chance in a crazy league of finishing top six. So I never said that. But what was taken was he has said definitively that Sheffield Wednesday are going to finish in the top six and they're on minus nine points. So that, again, is a crazy, crazy prediction. But that's what they took out of what I said. So again, it's how media outlets are actually taking what he said and deciding there's something in there that we can use and not actually printing what I actually said. It's what they wanted me to say. And again, they're looking for that. Not crazy prediction, but a prediction that probably nobody else would make. But again, I only based that on, on one game and the possibility of what might happen in the future. But it was taken by media outlets very, very differently because, well, nobody else is going to be saying this. It's, it's a crazy prediction. But if it comes, if, it, if it's right, we can be the ones that actually broke the story. But I never actually said that in the first place. But again, I would be very careful. If someone said to me, how are Wednesday going to do? There is no way I would say, well, for any team in the championship, they're going to finish top six because that, you just can't predict the league anyway. But I just thought, again, I rounded it all out, took every, all, everything into consideration and gave a view of what I saw as the possibility for the season. But it was taken in completely the wrong way for their reasons. And it was about having a prediction, a definitive prediction, a slightly crazy one in their eyes, but it's not actually what I said. Finch, I hope you've learned your lesson that this, this little square box that you're staring into and these three mm. faces, this is the only safe space <laughs> for a nuanced football conversation. What about my own Ed? home, Steve? Can I no, talk to Nicky about No, even that is, I tr- is I tread carefully, open to Chief. abuse. You don't know, you don't know who's listening. Mm. Nicky so, is continually misquoting you. And Primrose gives it that constantly. She'll go to nursery and be saying, you know what my grandpa has said yeah. about Sheffield Wednesday? It'll be all over Greenbank Nursery, all over. And the kids will <laughs> be taking that home and spreading this, this vitriol. <laughs> I, I know the virus. <laughs> I know you think... <laughs> I know you think Nikki's working out when she goes to the gym, Chinch, but I've heard her slagging you off in the cafe area. You'll never guess what he's just said about Sheffield Wednesday. Top six. I can hear a, can hear a scratching. You know, I think she's sat on the stairs with a notepad and pen and she's yeah. writing down every ludicrous thing, which tends to be everything I say is ludicrous. So maybe she's the one that's uh, speaking to all the newspapers. I'll, I'll keep an eye on that, Steve. This is it's something that ties into, it goes back also to what Rory was saying about how the media has kind of decided that rather than being a voice and setting an example, it now tries to communicate with its viewers, its listeners, its readers, by increasingly trying to sound like them, rather than necessarily the sort of the voice of authority that maybe can give them the the bigger picture. And, And rolling sports news has driven this in particular. And, and, and this podcast, in some ways, is, is an example of it, is trying to have a conversation that's that, you know, we try and elevate it as much as we possibly can. But an awful lot of, of podcast content is that thing of trying to have a, a football conversation in the way that people might in the pub or, or over a coffee or, or what have you. And, and, and the media has, has taken this concept and run with it, which is why you continuously have ridiculous polls like is Liverpool against Manchester City the greatest Premier League, greatest rivalry in Premier League history well it's the best rivalry of the last 12 to 18 months but you know it doesn't get anywhere close to United against Arsenal in the 90s and early noughties or, or this thing you know there's always a poll there's always a poll you know was that the greatest Premier League goal of the season well, I've only had three weeks. What are you talking about? You know, time. <laughs> and there's always people's tweets being read out to try and sort of get an, a knee-jerk response to further drive the conversation so that the media is, is perpetuating it, definitely. And, uh, well, at the risk of sounding like I'm, I'm moaning, and I'm really not. I'm not a moaner. You both know that. You all know that. In fact, look, you... I'm not a moaner. You all know that. You are, I from, don't you are from Yorkshire, so you've got no, to think I, of I, what the you're, relative you're context of that is. Definite remoner, but that's that's uh, a definite not... remoner. <laughs> the um, the I mean, I, I like to constructively criticise Stephen. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not a moaner. Sorry, I... where was where were the um, where were the commas in that sentence? <laughs> I like to constructively <laughs> criticise Stephen, comma, or did the comma come before my name? Uh, let's leave that open to people's judgment. Uh, the but. Quite often, I'll do the radio, and on the on the occasion occasions that I do I do the radio, and you try and give a kind of rounded opinion on a matter, or not kind of sort of nail your colours to a mast too early nail, on, or nail if you your don't cousins really have, to a mast. Are you, you nailing your nail cousins? Your, <laughs> I've only got one cousin, and he's really tall, so I couldn't nail him to a mast. 
you know, you try not to kind of go too far or, or be too definitive. And you invariably get feedback on, on such as it is on, on Twitter, which is kind of, oh, you know, sitting on the fence, you know, why don't, you know, don't have an opinion or not really saying anything. You think, well, hang on, I'm, I'm just trying to give both sides or just trying to say that I can see why I can interrogate my own position. And I, I don't know how much of, a, of an appetite there is for that. I think people quite like that knock about, this is my strong opinion and I'm going to stick, stick to it until it's proved, you know, irretrievably proven wrong. And as much as I kind of like him as a, as a bloke, and I think he's an excellent pundit, someone like Chris Sutton, I think if you look at the, the rise of Chris Sutton's media career, and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, I think Sutton's really, really good. But what marks him out is the strength of his opinions, the strength of his conviction. That's what makes him a, a compelling pundit in a lot of ways. It's why radio stations and TV, TV stations book him so much. It's why he's got a column in a newspaper, because Chris Sutton has strong opinions. That's one of his great kind of strengths, I suppose. I think there's quite a lot of football fans who, who respond well to that, who feel that they want their, their pundits, their commentariat to be either someone to kind of wholeheartedly agree with or to wholeheartedly disagree with. What I think a lot of people don't want is someone saying, well, you know, they did well in this sense, but they didn't do that well in that sense. We'll just have to see how it turns out on the training pitch. Because there's not much you can get your teeth in there to. And now that football is kind of a, it's not just a sport, it's not just a pastime, it's not just a game. It's, it's almost like a 24-7 lifestyle choice. I think having that sort of sense of nuance or that sense of hedging your bets or or not committing to something is seen as being in some way not, not useful because it's not something either to support or to rail against. Yeah, I, I think if we're, if, you know, if we're doing the work we do as pundits and the fans, viewers are watching us and they may be thinking, well, we're not really answering the question saying whether Liverpool or Leeds, how the season's going to go on day one, tell us today. It's like getting one piece of a thousand piece jigsaw and someone mm. saying, so what's the full picture then? I have no idea because I need more pieces. That's basically what we're saying here. So why would we? Okay, we, we played the game. Well, I certainly played the game very high level. You didn't. But you, you kind of understand the game. You understand that's, that's a the mechanics of the game. That is, no, that's, that's definitive and correct. But it's, yes, so we're meant to know more. But again, do they really seriously think, well, on day one, if someone asks me as a former player whether West Brom are going to go down or not, I should know. And if, I, if I'm not right, that means I don't know what I'm doing. I yeah, don't in some have way, all the information. No one has all the information. That's the problem. The problem with it is that in some way, if you get it, if you make that definitive prediction and you get it wrong, that in some way kind of suggests that you are not qualified and it, and it, it undermines your authority, which is ridiculous. Mm. You're, you're a former player, just as you know, the, the rest of us are, are not. Changes yeah, you know, yeah, abundantly yeah, clear. Yeah. Anywhere near, yeah. really. No, nowhere close. And no. It's the... But, but we are journalists, and there's this sense that former well, players... Yeah, I, I, should, I, yeah, okay, loose, loose term. Lo, loose term. Former mm. players should be able to tell the future, but that's not, that's not a fair demand. And equally, there's, there's a demand on journalists to, to predict if transfers will be a success or to, to yeah. sort of beat across all of the up-and-coming young talent in South America. And you think, well, that's not really what any of our jobs are. Like, it's, it's not my job to have heard of some 17-year-old playing for Fluminense. That's not my so job. Someone, I don't if someone to says to you, I, would someone ask you the question, how is Andrea Perlo going to do at Juventus? Tell us yeah, today no how it's no going idea. to go. And you're thinking, no idea. But well, you should know. Why should but you know? What you, could, what you can do is you can say, well, look, the, these, are the, these are the reasons to believe he'll do well. These are the reasons to believe yeah. he won't do well. This is the context. These are the precedents. This is what we've heard. This is what I've heard from this person. This is what I've heard from this person. But do, do people can... see that? Fans viewers see you as dodging, dodging the question by actually think... saying, doing the right thing and putting all your information together and saying, well, this is why I can't say yes or no, because we simply don't. Know. I'm not avoiding the question. I'm answering it in absolutely the right way. Do you remember that really famous, was it a Paxman interview with Michael Howard? When yes, it was Michael didn't... Howard, yeah didn't answer the question 13 times and Paxman just kept asking the same question. And that was, I think that probably predated Twitter, but it was taken as Was that as about West Brom or Fulham's hopes for the season? Yeah, it was, it was about question? Scott Parker's managerial prospect. Um, <laughs> Michael the, Howard's a Liverpool fan, yeah. I think. So, uh, he is a Liverpool uh, fan, yeah. He's just, not gonna be, he's just not going to be drawn on that sort of thing. <laughs> it's, um, but there was this, it was this, that was kind of the high point, certainly in British kind of political news culture of of politicians dodging, refusing to answer questions. And it was held up as a great example of journalism. Just Paxman just kept answering the asking the question, just kept saying, I will not let you escape. What about that? I can't remember what it was about. 
I won't let you escape. I'm not letting you off the hook. You, you have to answer this question. And it made Michael Howard, who I think was the Tory leader at the time, look incredibly shifty and evasive, which is not something Tory leaders often look like at all. And Certainly the, not um, to their detriment. No, no one seems to care. Um, but, and I think that sets the tone for a lot of kind of that, that confrontational journalism that we see in television across disciplines now, that it's not so much about kind of having a... I read a book about this, actually. It's not by Matt Taibbi, the Rolling Stone journalist. It's not set up to find constructive answers. It's set up either to be antagonistic or to find a soundbite. And so the politicians retreat into their soundbites and the journalists keep asking their questions. The problem is that... I know it's not for me to criticise Jeremy Paxman, but I don't think that is particularly good journalism, just to keep asking the same question in the same form of words. If, if someone gives you a dodgy answer, then your, your job as a journalist is, I think, to find another way round the question to get to what they mean. That's the skill. It's not just shouting the same sentence at them. But I think we've got a lot of that across, across the spectrum in terms of not just politics and current affairs, but sport as well. That There's this belief that, that they're trying to avoid giving us an answer and it's our job to shout at them until they do. Whereas certainly in football, and it's, it's obviously not an important context compared to politics, but quite often it's not that they're dodging giving us an answer to a question. It's just that they, they don't know an answer to the question. So certainly a pundit wouldn't, or a player wouldn't be able to tell you, you know, when players say, oh, we're taking it game by game, people say, oh, what a terrible cliche, but that is genuinely what players do. That is how players operate, certainly how they're encouraged to operate. And it's how they would like to think they operate. I'm not sure how true it can be that they don't think about where they are in the table or whatever. And I think there's too much of that sense that you, the job is to be an attack dog, to get to go to Chinch and say, well, so how are Sheffield Wednesday going to do? And if he says, I don't know, then you're, you, you're, you, you quite often get the follow-up, well, don't make a prediction. You're like, well, what, what value is that prediction? Inadvertently, Chinch, the person that misrepresented your views on Sheffield Wednesday has done you a favour. because. Apparently, we don't want nuance. So the fact that you've, the, the way they've dressed it up, you've made a firm prediction that despite their 12-point deduction, Sheffield Wednesday are going to finish in the top six. Who won? Means... It's top two. <laughs> Is that right? Oh, right. It's top two. You Sorry, fool. Chinch. I heard it from Andy Hinchcliffe. <laughs> automatic, automatic promotion despite a 12-point deduction. Chinch got you. Is the, do you know what? You're more likely to be asked on that podcast again. And your, your stock, yeah. your value might go up. Because to be honest, we all know pundits who if being wrong was detrimental to their career, they'd have disappeared a long time ago. And it, it, and it applies too to journalists, to, to, to columnists, to all sorts. You know, the transfer room and stuff is another one that ties into this. How often do you see in a newspaper, as we exclusively told you six weeks ago, this player would be joining this club, yet you never get a, sorry, how bad, six weeks ago we said that, that the player was going to join Club A and he's actually ended up joining Club B for a completely different amount of money that we quoted. It's those, those moments when you are proved right are trumpeted from the high hills, yet if you prove to be wrong, it very often gets buried. And it's only those with very long memories or an affiliation to the club or the player involved who bother bringing it up again. There is a conviction that we've spoken about, Chinch, but there is more value in that conviction, it would seem, than having some sort of value-based nuanced judgment, having seen more data and evidence. And so that, mm -hmm. that seems to be the way that, that Rory was saying about the media reflecting uh, how fans think. But also, if you think about how fans come to those conclusions, they aren't necessarily on the same journey as those in the media. Now, the media might want to do it for obviously self-promotion reasons. And, and that, that boils down to the kind of the predetermined narratives that we spoke about right at the very beginning. That's a, I, I came into this game with an idea and the game, regardless of what happened, has made me seem right. So that's an element of self-promotion. That's an element of, of kind of getting on that, that merry-go-round of facts becoming exactly what you wanted them to be to make you seem right or make you seem good at your job. But fans come to that conclusion via an emotional instinctive reaction to things so if you think about early knee-jerk reactions from fans after the first weekend it may well be I feel really 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 sad because I've realized that West Brom can't defend or I feel really really sad because I thought the Fulham this time around were going to be better than they were last time around because of the transfer policy changing because I believe in Scott Parker and because the people at the top of the club are making the right decisions this time around they've learned from their mistakes but if you are on an emotional journey prior to that first game and something happens to make you react to that instinctively that's how you create a knee-jerk reaction. So what we're getting now is we're getting a crossing of the streams where the, the media who have not really 
reacted emotionally are seeking to play on those emotions of the fans who have done exactly that and we are getting this kind of amalgam which is exactly what we've been speaking about for the last half an hour and it, it is yes content generation it is speaking with conviction over nuance but it also means that we are getting this homogenous knee-jerk reaction hole where it's incredibly difficult to differentiate between the talk on the terraces, which has incredible value and should be reflected in the media in the ways that it mm -hmm. always has, but also to have some sort of element of autonomy, but also authority through the media where you're able to have these conversations with nuance based on the data, based on the evidence, based on your expertise that can inform those conversations that are happening on the terraces. To have it as all one conversation based on the same foundations, to me, seems a backward step. But I also think, that, and, and something else that tied into the thought process on this is that is around about this time last year that Norwich beat Manchester City 3-2. I'm sure we all remember that game. Uh, but that was an example of a knee-jerk reaction about Norwich's capabilities of surviving in the Premier League on the back of that result. And then subsequently, for about six months, being billed as the best team to have ever been bottom of the Premier League. And that felt like a knee-jerk reaction that then had a lifespan that far, far extended beyond other evidence that was available mm. to us. Because actually, from that moment on, the season, the wheels came off Norwich's season. Yet, six months after they'd beaten Manchester City, people were still talking about how brilliant they were and, and how unlucky they would be to go down. And it wasn't until the final, effectively, the restart of the season, when they then lost every single game, that the penny seemed to drop that actually maybe that, result was the anomaly mm. and Norwich leveled out and then dropped off pretty quickly afterwards. To be fair I think Norwich almost falls into the same category as Leeds and I, I think that they will have different outcomes basically I think Leeds have got you know an infinitely better manager to Daniel Farker who he who himself is a good you know a good manager it's just that he's not my no great insult to Daniel Farker to say that he's not Marcelo Bielsa both figuratively and literally um, but Norwich was predetermined it was that they came up with this clutch of young players this progressive German manager it was decided that they would be good to watch with a capital G capital T capital W um, and even when they lost at Anfield I mean they, they created some chances at Anfield played quite well at Anfield got beaten 4-0 in what I think was a much better example of kind of promoted team's naivety than Leeds was and yet it was taken as a sign that they will be I remember it distinctly I remember reading the reaction on a cliff in Greenland, which is where, where I, I followed the opening game of last season's Premier League season. It was taken as a sign that Norwich, you know, will, will create chances against, against other teams. That, you know, obviously this is Liverpool, so they lost 4-0 they lost fine. But it was, from that point on almost, it was, well, whatever happens, our opinion, the opinion, capital T, capital O, is that Norwich are a good team and play well and will be fine. And as you say, it... it to be honest, by Christmas, it was fairly obvious that they weren't getting results. And although I'm all for philosophies and ways of playing, I think they're all really important. Um, the ultimate aim of the, the whole kind of business is to, to win games or at least to get enough points to suggest that you might stay up. And Norwich didn't do that at any point, really, from, from October onwards. So I think part of the problem is less knee-jerk reactions and more pre predetermined opinions that are, are just we stick with as a, as a football culture endlessly until almost the point where they are no longer at all defensible and then suddenly we go oh actually maybe we're wrong about that and it's like a newspaper apology it's you know the the, the initial opinion is streamed on the back page the 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 retraction of the opinion is very much a uh, a kind of three paragraphs in a box on page 47 but it is it's, it's it's crazy sorry Chins, it's a crazy situation of that that tiny example that's led to the original opinion being formed followed by a huge body of evidence that might contradict it but it takes a vast span of time before that initial knee-jerk reaction opinion call it whatever you may is finally revised on the weight of all of that overwhelming evidence. That's, I, I find that absolutely fascinating. It's because that original knee-jerk reaction or predetermined opinion after the first game only needs to last 72 hours. That's, that's, mm. the, that's the key thing. It only needs to last until the next game. And once the next game happens, yes, you might have the predetermined opinion that it's, it has extra weight of evidence, but it doesn't actually matter that much. So this is my, this is my whole theory with this, which is to do... I think we, we underestimate how much the length of the season defines 
how we think about sport. And it's something I think about a lot because the baseball and basketball seasons in the States, which I'm much more exposed to now than I used to be, are so long, so impossibly long. And, and the NFL season is so short. You know, there's 16 regular season games in the NFL. They so don't even bother playing everybody else once. I know. It's, uh, how, yeah. how can you have a season where you don't play all the other teams? But it's the fact it's that... Mind-blowing. But you might play even... some teams more than once. Excellent yeah. idea. Uh, it's... Stephen, do not pontificate upon things that you do not fully understand. That is, that <laughs> is, is. called, that is called a knee-jerk reaction without thought... any sort of evidentiary basis. I thought we were having an entire podcast discussion on this. It is ridiculous the way they decide who's playing who in all American sports. That's just a fact. The, but so the NF, in the NFL, it, there are so few games that literally every game, right up until basically what, the last three or four of the season, is there, is there is a huge amount riding on it because the whole year builds up to this tiny, tiny sample of games. In baseball and basketball, each individual game doesn't matter that much because, you know, you play an event tomorrow, so if you lose, who cares? And, and it's only over the broad sweep of the season that you can start to make conclusions. Because if, if, you know, the Sacramento Kings, if that's a team, if they, if they lose one game, it does not matter. Losing one game individually doesn't matter. You, ne- you know, you, ne- you never know get a team who's going unbeaten through the entire baseball season. The problem with football, so the glory with football. Or the, bas- but, or the basketball all, yeah. season that the Sacramento <laughs> Kings will be involved in. The glory with football is that it's a small sample size, so every game really means something. You know, if you, if you suffer one defeat, you don't get to think, we're playing the same team tomorrow, that one doesn't matter, which is why you get that euphoria, that ecstasy, and the dejection that you see at every football match, because everything does matter. But the problem is that it doesn't matter quite as much as we want it to, because the season is still quite long. It's, it stems over nine months, it's 38 games, not 16 which means that the conclusions that we draw, there is this, this instinct to draw massive conclusions from every single game, as you have to in the NFL. If the Jets lose to the Bills, that could well be the Jets kind of done again for the season. Well, that not Where only it, happened, and the conclusions after that happened. game were also that the Jets are done already. In the exactly. So the Jets have got you know, a quarterback who's quite well thought of. They've got, you know, they've, they've got all these ambitions for the season. They lose the opening game of the season to the Bills, which means all of a sudden the Jets are done. And that's true in the NFL. And that's the culture we have of talking about football, but it doesn't quite work over a 38-game season, which is why you end up chinch getting asked for predictions because it feels like the first game really matters, but it doesn't matter quite as much as it ought to in a really, really small sample size. So I think the problem is, from the point of view of a major event, football season is the perfect length. It is absolutely what you want it to because it extends over most of the year and it retains drama right until the end. And crucially, from the start, which baseball and basketball don't do, there's no drama in the first opening weeks of the basketball season because who cares? You've got another 100 games to go. I know it's 82 in basketball, isn't it? You've got another 60 games to go, so who cares about the first 20? The problem is that we have a football culture that is covered like where every game is like an NFL game, except that it's not because you do have more chances. And I think that is where the, the discrepancy is. That's my theory. Well done, mate. I think that is worth um, further discussion at a later date because 80% of that I agreed with, 20% I vehemently disagreed with. That's a shame you're not, you're not you know, it's a shame that only 80% of you is correct, Hugh. That's a bit of a blow for you. 80% of me is correct. The other 20% of me thinks that we should move on. So, Chinch, a final thought before we have a soccer story. I was just going to say, with, it seems like the prediction business is here to stay, but with our, um, you know, the predictions league that we've done, the SPM, PLPL, PM, PMD, X, SPL, PM league, Pie. what's the latest date? What, I, what's the latest date for submission to actually make your choices? Is it October? Is that right? So we've got Transfer a few deadline day. What I'd say to people, um, it'd be interesting to see how many people have submitted their league tables already. Or how many of our listeners are actually saying, you know what, I'm going to watch a few games, at least watch every team play once to maybe just give me an idea before I go steaming in and predict my league. Because that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to forget I need to do it, but then that'll help me because I've seen a number of games and surely even six or seven games is better in, in making a judgment on how teams might finish the season than doing it before a ball is kicked or after one game. Well, as, as everybody who actually pays attention to uh, the podcast will know that you can submit your team now, but then change it, change it up until October the 5th, as many times as you like, as long as you uh, do your final submission before that deadline of 11.59pm. No, hold on a minute, that's not, that's not right. If you, if you submit your league, you should have to stick with it. You shouldn't be allowed to change it. Well, why submit it and then change it? Just take your time 
and submit it the day before you need to and leave it alone. Everybody who this wants to play the SPM PLPL, completely ignore Chinch and do what I said instead because oh. uh, Chinch doesn't know what he's talking about. Rory no, has this, is all, this is all irrelevant. This is all irrelevant. I have removed a headphone jack from my laptop. <laughs> well done. That's, that's big news. Just at the end of this week's podcast. Do you know what, what I've loved about the last sort of 20 minutes or so is that normally Rory has got a pen in his hand during the podcast and he frantically scribbling notes to, to make sure that he gets his points across. He spent most of this podcast rather than with a pen in his hand with a pair of tiny pliers. <laughs> which he's kind of been holding menacingly and whenever anyone else is speaking has been furiously trying to uh, recover that headphone jack congratulations no, that's not, no, hang on that's it, not true i haven't I've, I've been i've occasionally measured up i found the right i've got my toolbox here and i, I think the, the mistake i made was i, I was using a, a heavyweight pair of pliers whereas what i actually needed were these serrated pliers that i stole from somebody uh, possibly a parent of some sort uh, and they have allowed me to get to the broken headphone jack remove it from my laptop which means that for all my future zoom appointments i will won't have to do it through my phone this is a major development mm -hmm. Stephen. you've no idea how much this has reduced my stress level rory i just made a knee-jerk reaction based on something that i noticed within the last <laughs> yeah. couple of minutes. exactly steve would you like me to come around and remove the headphone jack that has been stuck in your ipad since 2017 i think it's well worth the journey yes i'll obviously yes. leave it in, i'll leave it in the garden for you so that we don't have to break any of the current regulations excellent I it is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori What a Soccer Story. This is when Andy Hitchcliffe tells a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. This is a story that is, is bang up to date. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with David Stowell, who is a, a commentator. He used to do a lot of work at Man United. Now does a lot of work for Sky and other people as well. Excellent commentator. And I now consider him to be my very best friend. We get on like a house on fire. And he told me to be working together for quite a number of months. And again, not really mentioned anything to do with kind of my footballing past or anything like that. But then he, we were sat um, in the green room, even though it was mainly grey, before a Nations League game at Sky. And we're chatting away about the, the teams we're going to be covering. It's kind of, I don't know who it was. It was like North Macedonia or something. So there's only so much you can say. And then he said to me, I want to say a little story about um, when you were really in demand and I said, what, as a player? Because I was always in demand as a player because I was such an excellent player. And he said, no, 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 nothing like that at all. He said, when he was at school in the early 90s, he was about eight or nine years old, they used, there was these card collections you could get and they were called pro set cards. Something, I've, I've signed a lot of them at games. There these people that, that ask you to sign pictures and, and these cards. I've never realised what they actually were. But David Stowell was, actually told me that he had the full collection, the pro set collection, the Premier League collection, bar one missing card one player was missing from his collection and it was andy hinchcliffe so he was again he said the kids in the the, the playground they didn't they didn't know they'd never seen me play they didn't realize i was awesome but all that mattered to them was finishing their collections and getting my card for david stowell became all consuming and apparently i don't know what they did when they put these cut with the impacts normally impacts of five or something like that these these packs that kids can collect so clearly they they must have the company that produced this must have thought, you know what we need to do here is to keep the kids buying the cards and getting multiple players, is we're going to have to keep a player back who's going to be like you know, the, the gold card that everybody is desperate for to complete their collection. It seems as if that player, no, it wasn't Paul Gascoigne, it was me. So David eventually had to do a I'm not really going to go into details of, of what he traded to get me to complete his collection, but he said... It was so great working with me, but he, again, he saw me in a very different light because the eight-year-old schoolboy David Stowell had gone to the ends of the earth to get the pro set Andy Hinchcliffe card to complete his collection. And once he completed that collection, he was the cock of the schoolyard in the very best way. That is exactly <laughs> how I feel about Chelsea's John Bumstead in 1986. I... Ah. When my mum brought her lasagna over on Sunday, she also brought a lot of boxes that had been in her house. Because what you want when you move in house is somebody to bring loads of boxes that were neatly stored in their attic and were doing no harm to anybody to say, actually, we want rid of these. You put them somewhere now. That's exactly what you want. Thanks, mum. But in one of them was, my, was a collection of, of, of those cards. Uh, so I will, look through, I will look through them. I think they're from 1990. Uh, you were active in 1990, Chinch, weren't you? It was your peak. Yeah, I was active everywhere apart from the pitch, really. A lot of injuries, a lot of bad back problems, knee problems, brain problems, really. Um, I will look to see if there is an Andrew George in there. 
see what I yeah, can see what I can do now. There's a couple of mentions of your mother's lasagna here. I, I got a feel what we need to do next time we all actually physically get together, we should have a lasagna off. Because <laughs> Nikki's vegetarian lasagna, homemade from the vegetables in our garden, is absolutely it's unparalleled in the culinary world. Your I think you should be pitching your mum's lasagna against Nikki's lasagna, and we should just see which we all prefer. You, you know how highly regarded Nikki's cooking is, but I think, I think in terms of a lasagna, of a lasagna Alison Smith takes some beating. So let's do it. Let's have a lasagna off. I, I don't need an extra excuse to eat too much lasagna. <laughs> and, and me and Hugh can do the pre-lasagna eating predictions. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and whatever happens with the taste test, we yeah. will stick to what we, we have predicted. Rigidly, rigidly. Will... Are, you gonna, are, you gonna, are you actually going to look at the tops of the lasagna or not even look at the lasagnas? Just make a prediction based on absolutely nothing. Well, we'll know from the crispy bits, but uh, that might not be the only defining factor. Keep your correspondence coming in to seppiespenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy and Stephen. To you all for listening as well. We will be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I, I can't tell you how happy I am that I've re remembered these players. I really can't. This, is, this has been, you know, it's been a long few days and the last thing I needed was to think I've got to go and take my laptop that I don't actually own. It's a work laptop <laughs> uh, and, and give it to Clegg, who is the local fixing man who can fix any manner of uh, electrical appliances and give it to him for an indeterminate period of time because he, he, he does it at his own pace. His shop is a thing of, of wonder. It's just a big pile of stuff. And then you say, is, that, is that Clegg from Ilkley Forward Solutions? Is that, is that Clegg? Mm. Is that the one I'm thinking of? The one no, everybody it's, knows. It's Clegg from Clegg's. That's what his shop's called, <laughs> Clegg's. And bearing, it, bearing in mind where he's located, I'd imagine most of the things he fixes are driven by steam or diesel. So your laptop might, you know, even, even if it's a few years old, might sort of bamboozle him a little bit. Well, so the, part of the reason that I'm using headphones is because, as we all know, I broke my microphone. Do you remember? That was a couple of weeks ago. And uh, oh, my, my, my microphone in some way gave up the ghost. And I have now ordered a USB cable from Amazon, which should be arriving today in time for me to do the radio tonight. Um, <laughs> that's anyway, how, how nice for Five Live. I went to, I'm paying for it myself. Is he actually it's called Clegg or have you just taken the name of one of the characters no. from Last of the Summer Wine? Come on. He's called Clegg. He's called Clegg. Lovely fella. Lovely fella. <laughs> Mad shot. Coming up next week, Rory pushes Clegg from Clegg's down the, down the street in a bathtub. A <laughs> lot, of, lot, lot of people rolling down hills in bathtubs around here. It is your thing.